Hello and welcome back. I am Glenn McDorman and this is ATOS, your fairy tale speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we're talking about Thomas the Rhymer, a novel by Ellen Kushner, which was originally published in 1990, and then it went on to win both the World Fantasy Award and the Mythopoeic Award in 1991. Before we get into the show, though, I, I want to plug the network's crowdfunding efforts. We are 100% listener-supported, right? We don't do ads, and we don't really want to if we can continue to avoid it. And that support, that listener support, keeps our shows going, and we are immensely grateful for it. And if you're a supporter on Patreon, you get a bonus episode each and every month. I think there are about 50 of them on there now. And at the second tier and higher, you get to decide what we cover. And by the time you're hearing this, this will be 100% true of ATOS as well. So if you'd like to have a say in what books I read for this show, if you'd like to get another 50 or so episodes, if you just like what we do and want to keep us on the air, then please, please join us on Patreon. And you can find us there at patreon.com slash clay temple media all right let's get to the matter at hand if you're ready for some fairies let's get into thomas the rhymer the first thing we should say about thomas the rhymer is that he's not just the principal character of this book that bears his name but that he's a real historical figure and also the subject of several works of medieval literature and I'll talk more about this in the next segment, but here I'll say that what this means is that Kushner's novel takes place in southern Scotland in the 13th century, though this is not something that Kushner ever makes explicit in the book, and that's something else we'll talk about later. So that's the setting in a nutshell, or part of it anyway. So let's talk about the storytelling device that Kushner uses here. The story is told in the first person, but in the voice of four different characters, each during different parts of Thomas the Rhymer's story. And one of these voices, the, the longest section, is Thomas himself. So the, the tale of Thomas the Rhymer is the retelling of a fairy story. Not a fairy tale, but a medieval fairy story. And so it has a lot in common with Tad Williams's The War of the Flowers, which we covered just a, a few months ago. But the book opens before any of the fairy business begins. We, we explore the early career of Thomas the Rhymer, who is a young man trying to make it in the world as a professional harper. And what this means in this world is that he writes songs and he performs them, uh, as well as a, a staple of classics, of course. And he does this at the dinner parties of the elite in the Kingdom of Scotland and also seemingly in England and France as well. And this part of the tale is told from the perspective of an elderly couple who manage a small farm in southern Scotland in the, the border region just north of Northumberland. And Thomas shows up at their farmhouse seeking shelter from a, a dark and stormy night. And the, the narrator of this section is the husband in this couple, a, a man named Gavin, who values hard work and straightforwardness. He's a, a real country mouse. Well, Thomas has become a city mouse. And, you know, there's some tension there. The plot of this first section hinges around Thomas's interest in romantically pursuing women. I mean, he's in his 20s at this point. And he stays with this couple, Megan Gavin. He stays with Megan Gavin for a little while, and then he returns to visit for brief periods as well. And he becomes something of an adoptive son for this couple who has grown old but has never had any children or grandchildren of their own. And the whole setup is idyllic. It feels a lot, to me anyway, it feels a lot like the Kent farm in Smallville. And Thomas brings gifts for Megan Gavin whenever he arrives, and he's an extremely talented musician and just generally fun to have around. But we gradually come to realize, though, that when he comes to visit, he's usually escaping some drama at the court of the king or, or some other aristocrat. 
and that he has fathered a, a child with a member of the aristocracy. And of course, if this is discovered, it will be bad news for him because he's not a member of the aristocracy. But he gets word that the woman in question has married just in time for the true nature of her pregnancy to go unnoticed. And so he is off the hook. And during these visits to, to Megan Gavin, Thomas casually pursues a beautiful local woman who is the, the younger sister of one of the community's farmers and someone who comes around to help out Megan and, and, and Gavin since they're aging and taking care of their farm is becoming more difficult. Now, I, I use the phrase here, casually pursue, but really this starts out of habit. Thomas just doesn't really know how to interact with a young woman in any other way than to sexually pursue her. And in some ways, his flirting seems a bit cruel because we, the audience, we know, and, and Meg also knows, uh, that he's not really serious about this woman, about Elspeth. And he loves to tease her about her serious belief in fairies. And, and really, for her, it's a fear of them. But eventually, Thomas does become serious about Elspeth. And it's just as he realizes that he loves her, that Elspeth's fear of fairies is realized. One day, Thomas goes wandering on Eildon Hill, which is a stunningly beautiful place in Scotland that everyone should visit if they have the chance. Uh, and from the perspective of Gavin, Thomas just doesn't come back. And I love the description of this landscape that we get from Gavin, by the way. So I'm just going to indulge myself here and read a bit of Kushner's prose, which is quite gorgeous. One fine day, Tom went off walking his lone, high in the Eildons, where the world, he said, was spread before him like a jeweled map, and the only sound, the wind ruffling through broom and gorse. He walked out empty-handed, without even his harp, and he never came back. And I just love the beauty of this description. We, we get physical sensations, but also the emotional response to being alone on a mountain, which is something that really matters to me, something that really resonates with me. It's also a great way to bring this part of the book to a close. We're going to switch now to Thomas's narrative to find out what actually happened that day. Just as Thomas is daydreaming about Elspeth and about maybe constructing a life that can include her, he is approached by a beautiful woman all in green and riding a white horse. And of course, we know that she's the queen of Elfland and no one can resist her. And because Thomas sleeps with her, he, he now has to go with her to ferry and serve as her slave for seven years before he'll be allowed to return to the real world, what's called here Middle Earth. Uh, the next hundred plus pages, really just shy of half the book, tell us about Thomas's life in ferry. And, and I'll say up front that even though this is the real fantasy section of this book, this was my least favorite part of the story. And I'll talk more about that in a, a later segment. In Fairy, Thomas has to live by some special rules because he's immortal. He's not allowed to speak to anyone other than the queen, and he's also not allowed to eat anything that isn't from the mortal world, from, from Middle Earth. And if he does, he'll, he'll never be able to get home, of course, right? I guess we know that. The, the food part is not really important. The queen just has like a freezer full of human food. But the speaking is really important for Thomas's relationships and also for the plot of the adventure. Thomas is, however, able to, to sing, right? That doesn't quite count as talking. So he's able to sing, and in performing, really, is, is one of the duties that he'll have during his stay. Uh, and the other duty, of course, is to have a lot of sex with the queen. And much of this section is about Thomas's romantic and also his sexual relationship with the queen. And, and we see that she's not a person the way that humans are. The, she's cold. She's distant. And this is true of all elves. Uh, indeed, this is why Thomas is here. 
elves need mortal music and mortal art, and they, they just don't have feelings that way, right? And it's also why the elves take mortal lovers. And what it comes down to in the end here is that Thomas loves the queen, but she'll never be able to love him the same way. While he's here in Elfland, Thomas develops a rivalry with the queen's brothers, an elf just called the Hunter. The Hunter has imprisoned a number of mortals in various uh, disturbing ways, and, and Thomas dislikes this. And there's a, a riddle that he has to solve, and in solving it, he learns the story of the Dove, who used to be a woman who was part of a, a tragic love story, and, and Thomas works to free her, even though doing so will cost him. And, and there's a, a figure here as well who is a, a human man called sometimes the King of the Wood and sometimes the King Who Waits. Uh, and this is someone Thomas speaks with from time to time while he's having this adventure trying to, to free the mortals that the hunter has imprisoned. And this is Christ. It's not an uncommon notion in medieval literature. And the service that Thomas renders to Christ in trying to help out other people is what actually leads to Thomas's transformation. It's, it's the heart of his character arc as he discovers selflessness and discovers service, which were things that were missing from his life in Scotland, where he was an extraordinarily selfish person. And in the end, because he's done this service, the queen returns Thomas back to his home, unaged, even though seven years have passed, and also with two special gifts. One of the gifts is that Thomas now cannot tell a lie, even if he wants to. And the second gift is that he can now know some of the future. He can tell a little bit of the future. All right. When Thomas returns to Scotland, his story is now picked up by Meg, and it's through her eyes that we see the toll that living in Elfland has taken on Thomas. He's, he's not the same person that he was. And he really just needs to stay with Meg and Gavin. It's a real convalescence. And when he encounters Elspeth, he discovers that she's married during the seven years that he was gone. But also, she's been widowed, and also that she's mad at him for running off in the middle of their romance. In the end, and, and this is the shortest section of the novel, by the way, uh, in the end, Thomas decides that he's been rehabilitated, and so he goes off to seek his fortune as a harper, and then to return when he'll be able to support Elspeth as his wife. Right? Thomas doesn't have any other skills in the world, right? he can't be a farmer. Okay, so we are at the last narrative now, and this one is told by Elspeth after she has married Thomas. We learn that Thomas has become a member of the gentry because he's been given some land to live on as a reward for his service as both a harper and also a soothsayer. He and Elspeth at this point have had several children in the intervening years, and they've lived an interesting and comfortable life together. But now Thomas is dying. He's just withering away from some mysterious ailment. The story that Elspeth really wants to tell, though, is about the crisis of their marriage that happened when a young aristocrat came to their hall to play his harp for the, the most renowned harper in Scotland. And this person turns out to be the bastard son of Thomas, though the boy himself does not know it. Thomas does. And the dramatic tension here is that Thomas doesn't want to tell Elspeth, doesn't want to tell his wife about this, but she knows that something is up. And also, hey, he can't lie. But it also hinges on the fact that because Thomas can see the future, he knows that his son, who has taken after his own harping, something they have in common, in fact, it's the only thing they have in common, he knows that his son is going to die within the next year. And it's a sad story. It's quite an excellent novelette in itself, this, this section. It almost doesn't need any of the rest of the book to stand on its own. It's really quite beautiful, really quite perfect. 
But we do still have more story here. The, the very end of the novel is about Elspeth's despair that Thomas is dying. She knows all about the Queen of Elfland. I mean, everybody does. And she wants Thomas to call to her for help. But Thomas does not want to do that. But in the end, the queen comes anyway, comes of her own volition, and she takes Thomas away, leaving behind a, a fake dead body. So everyone thinks that Thomas has died, but Elspeth knows that Thomas is alive, that he's living on in fairy. And even though he is almost certainly the lover of the queen again, Elspeth is not disturbed by this. And the final words of the book are, are quite beautiful, so I'll just read them. He has my love until I end my days. And maybe we will meet again in some land beyond the mortal river. And maybe I have only had the loan of him for thrice seven years. I do not know. I think he is walking under the blossoms of a very old orchard. I think that he is harping before the elven host. I think that he is singing. And this ending just stayed with me for days, kind of haunted all of my quiet moments. It was a beautiful, beautiful passage and a, a gorgeous way to end a gorgeous book. Well... Let's jump into our themes and motifs segment now. We'll talk about the strengths later, though I guess you can see what I think one of them is. So themes and motifs. All right, we can use Elspeth's final words here, I think, as a springboard into our first topic, which is to think about Thomas the Rhymer as a love story. Uh, this is on the nose, perhaps. The story is explicitly about Thomas and Elspeth, and it is a kind of uh, a romantic tragedy, even if Elspeth's closing words here are, are hopeful or they're optimistic. Although fairy, or Elfland as it's sometimes called here in the story, although it is a real place in this story, it also functions as something of an allegory, which is just what it does also in medieval literature. And in this case, the love story of Thomas and Elspeth really hinges around growing up, and, and it especially hinges on Thomas learning how to be a good husband while he's in fairy. Indeed, we might really say that this book is principally concerned with the topic of masculinity. The first two of our four narrators are men, but they are very different men. Kushner writes Gavin, both in his own narrative and also in Meg's narrative, as an ideal husband, as an aging man who's devoted to his wife and is also a, a generous person. He's kind, he's hardworking. When we meet Thomas, though, he's an exciting dilettante who doesn't really work hard for anything he has. He even shuns hard work, I would say, and, and he doesn't really consider others either. He doesn't think about them. He doesn't consider how his actions are going to affect them. He is frivolous. He's flirtatious. He's fun, but he would make a terrible husband. It's only in fairy that he discovers what it means to be a partner in a romantic relationship. And in part, this is through his negative experience of the queen, who is also a terrible partner, but it's mostly because he discovers selflessness and service while he is there. And these are explicitly connected with romantic love in the story. So it's not merely a matter of Thomas becoming selfless and service-oriented. It's that he learns that these are an important component of a good romantic partnership. And we see this echoed in the character of Elspeth at the end of the book when she chooses Thomas's life and Thomas's well-being over her possession of Thomas or her possession of his love. She wants to be able to support him, to console him when he's learning that he has a son from a previous relationship. And she wants the Queen of Elfland to come and take him, even though she knows that he's going to have to have sex with her in order to fulfill this bargain. And so through the, the various romantic relationships in the book, we see that Kushner is presenting a model of love as service and a model of marriage as partnership. 
But this is not only a love story. It is also a retelling of a medieval fairy story, a medieval folktale. And there was a rather large movement in fantasy in the 1980s and the the 1990s that sought to adapt, to to reinterpret, to reimagine, and even retell folktales of various kinds. And these could be modern fairy tales like the ones that we get in The Brothers Grimm and Hans Christian Andersen, or they could be based on medieval literature like we have here. And there were a lot of writers involved in this movement, uh, which was creating what is often called mythic fiction or or mythic fantasy. Neil Gaiman is probably the biggest name to come out of this group, and uh, we can see a lot of these same ideas in The Sandman, and also in his early short stories, and in Stardust, and, and so on, really about half of Gaiman's work. And even when I finished this book, I jumped on Twitter to follow Ellen Kushner, and I did that just in time to see her share a photo of herself and Neil Gaiman in the early 1990s that filled me with a ton of nostalgia, also made me miss my hair. But besides Kushner and Gaiman, there were also writers such as Charles DeLint and especially Terry Windling. Terry Windling wrote a number of mythic fantasy pieces, but her legacy really is as an editor and as an anthologizer. And as one of the two editors of the year's best fantasy and horror for 15 years, she really shaped what readers like me thought the genre of fantasy was all about. But she also edited collections that were exclusively devoted to mythic fantasy. These include books such as Snow White, Blood Red, Blackthorn, White Rose, and Ruby Slippers, Golden Tears. You can see a naming pattern there. And I had all of these books when I was a teenager, and I would read these stories over and over and reading this book, reading Thomas the Rhymer, has made me really miss those stories. And so I think we might be looking through those anthologies in the future for me and Brandon to discuss some of them. And, and some of them might actually be suitable over on Elder Sign. Uh, otherwise, though, I think we might end up doing some of these as bonus episodes on Patreon. I think it'll be a lot of fun to revisit these. But all right, back to back to this book. So what Kushner has done here is to reimagine the story of Thomas the Rhymer as a contemporary novel and especially as a a kind of gothic romance. And so I want to talk just a little bit about the literary tradition of Thomas the Rhymer, because it's really fascinating. It's quite interesting. So there are are two works from the pre-modern period about Thomas. Uh, The first of these is called The Romance of Thomas the Rhymer, and this is a 15th century poem in Middle English. It's more or less contemporary with Chaucer, who you've all read in high school, and with uh, Mallory's La Morte Arthur, which uh, you may not have read, but you've certainly seen a movie based on it. And this work, the the romance of Thomas, the rhymer, is the story of Thomas's sojourn in fairy and the the gift of prophecy that he receives when he comes back. And there's a lot more emphasis on the the prophecies in this work than there are in Kushner's novel. But all these prophecies are actually about historical events that happened after Thomas's life in the 13th century and before the composition of this poem, before the, the romance was written. And the poem is actually quite wrapped up in medieval Scottish politics. And, and I wish more of our contemporary politics involved fairy tales and fairy stories, too. All right, so the the second source from pre-modernity here is called The Ballad of Thomas the Rhymer, which is really uh, an 18th century composition and is one of the the principal works in 19th century collections of Scottish folktales. And those collections themselves were a huge part of the creation of a Scottish national identity as part of the nationalism movement, which you have now heard me talk about in several episodes. The the ballad is shorter than the romance, but it's also more fun, I think. It's more of a folktale than the romance is. And the ballad has been really the principal source of Kushner's story rather than the, the romance. And throughout the book, both in the text and also as epigrams at the beginning of the sections, Kushner uses a lot of Scottish ballads that were collected by Francis James Child in the 19th century. And so 
in in the book here, in this novel, you'll see them listed as child ballad number 37 or child ballad number 103 and, and, and so on. And some of the songs that Thomas sings in Elfland are adapted from these ballads. And this is something that I really loved about the book and, and made me want to get more involved in the, the folk music scene here in Philadelphia. But even though Kushner did draw more from the ballad than from the romance, she also does include a number of allusions to other medieval fairy stories. And and this includes several invocations of the story of Sir Orfeo, which is itself a medieval retelling of the classic story of Orpheus and Eurydice that we get in Ovid's Metamorphoses. Also, Neil Gaiman has retold this story in The Sandman. But this is not the only medieval allusion here. On top of Sir Orfeo, the presence of the king who waits, or the king in the wood, is an idea that comes from these medieval romances. And more than anything else, fairy stories, medieval fairy stories, are concerned with Christian virtues. And so there is often a Christ figure in these stories, just like there is in Arthurian literature as well. And in fact, a lot of Arthurian stories, of course, are also fairy stories. There's a real overlap there between those genres. And this incorporation of the long literary tradition of Thomas the Rhymer and also fairy stories is, for me, a a great strength of the book. Uh, Kushner's use of the child ballads was a real high point for me. It was a big part of the, the joy that I had in reading this book. Another part of that joy, though, is simply Kushner's prose. She does a marvelous job of giving each narrator a unique voice and a, a unique perspective, and that is not easy to do. And the world really comes alive through their voices, and there are just some wonderful, wonderful passages. Gavin and Meg are probably my favorite of the narrators, perhaps Gavin most of all, and I just took a lot of pleasure from their words. I looked forward to the, the moments I was going to get to sit down in the evenings and read this book. But there are two more elements of this book that I want to praise before I turn to talking about some of the weaknesses, and there were some weaknesses. The first is the cover. I'm sure this book's been reprinted with a new cover at some point in the last 30 years, but I have the first edition from 1990, and it has this gorgeous cover by Thomas Canty, who has been a major force in fantasy art for for decades and is especially associated with this mythic fantasy movement, and I think did the cover for everything that Terry Windling ever edited or anthologized. Canty uses an Art Nouveau style. Maybe we could call it a Nouveau Art Nouveau style, if you'll forgive me the dad joke. And Art Nouveau is one of my favorite styles of painting. This is a cover that I could look at for a long time, and I'm really not sure why I haven't tried to get a Thomas Canty poster to hang up here in the studio, other than that I guess maybe it would actually be too much of a distraction and I'd get less recording done. Okay, the the last bit of praise I'll heap on the book is Kushner's world building, at least the parts that take place in Scotland. It's entirely possible to read this book and have no clear idea where or when this story is taking place. And this is because she never tells us anything. She just shows us the world through the eyes of her characters. And if you don't know where the Alden Hills are, if you've never heard of Dunbar, then you might just think you're in a kind of nebulous, quasi-real fairy tale world. And I think that this move, I think this gives the whole story an air of magical realism that really animates the world and animates the the people who live in it, breathes life into all of it. That said, I think Krishna really fails to deliver in Elfland. Uh, the world of Elfland is not especially interesting. It's not well-constructed. And while I definitely enjoyed this book much more than Tad Williams' The War of the Flowers, this is the, the one area where I think Williams does a better job. Kushner's fairy just doesn't feel real or feel lived in, and, and that's a real shame. But also, I just don't think the voice that she gives to Thomas is as strong as the other three. It's just not as enjoyable. 
But also the story in Elfland isn't that interesting either. There are no clear objectives for Thomas and also no clear stakes. A lot of the plot just hinges on Thomas's ignorance. But Kushner tells this in a way that keeps readers ignorant too. And so we get a lot of surprise without any suspense. And I just don't think that works very well. And the last thing I'll say about this is that there's just altogether too much sex in Elfland. And and that seems to me to be the impetus for this section of the story. And I appreciate that this is a part of the mythic fantasy move of the 90s to to, to dial up the, the sexiness. But there is just too much and it drags on for way too long. But in the end, even though I disliked the most fantastical part of the book, which is also the biggest section of the book... I really enjoyed Thomas the Rhymer, and I think the book is well worth reading. And I'm looking forward to doing some more mythic fantasy in the the future, as I already mentioned. And, and you know, even if Brandon and I don't get uh, a chance to do any of these, certainly Brent and I are going to end up doing some of Gaiman's work in this genre over on Hanging Out with a Dream King before too long. Well, that's going to bring my review to a close. A slightly short one this month, I think. I hope you'll visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com and talk with me about the themes and motifs that I've identified, also the, the strengths and the weaknesses, but of course, especially on what I left out. And there is an unresolved element in this novel that I would love your thoughts about. I'm fascinated by this character of the king in the wood or the king who waits. This character is a, a real shadow figure in this story, and he does serve a direct plot role. But he is also clearly Christ, and a medieval type of Christ, who is engaged in an ongoing spiritual war against the devil. And this is something that's actually alluded to in a mention of his final battle. And the queen herself shows Thomas that hell and heaven are real places that can actually be traveled to. And she also warns him not to swear by the adversary. And all of this is a regular feature of medieval literature, especially fairy stories and Arthurian romances, the the grail stories of the Arthurian romances. But I'm just not sure what Kushner is doing with it here. There's also some discussion of the souls of elves. They're, they're, They're not eternal the way a human soul is. And there's also a lot of invocations of Christian holidays. So I guess in short, what I'd like to talk more about on the forum is religion. What is Kushner doing with religion in this book? I I look forward to having this conversation with you guys. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all of our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. If you like this show and you like what we're doing on the network, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Whatever you can pledge helps us produce even more podcasts, and it helps us produce them more often. All right. Well, next time, we're going to be reading something that I am very excited about. Our first Star Trek novel, which is not something that I have a lot of experience with, despite being a hardcore tracker, despite having Star Trek tattoos. I don't have a lot of experience with Star Trek novels. This one is going to be The Entropy Effect by Vonda McIntyre. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world.